Hello, I'm Stu Rolls and welcome back to another episode of the Back in the Band podcast, the show where we remember a simpler time in our lives when music and being in a band back in our youth meant you could actually dream of one day living the life of a rock and roll star. For today's episode, we'll be looking back on coming up with band names without a care in the world, covering songs you can't actually play in the first place, and writing songs about dogs. What is it with people and writing songs about dogs? Before we do though, time to bring in today's co-host for the day, a man who one day wrote about dogs, but also wrote the suicide song. And then the next day, he covered Robbie Williams' greatest hits. It's Dave Bentley. Hello, hello. Hello, Dave. Thanks for wasting another hour of your life recording this podcast with me today, mate. Absolute privilege. I wanted to ask you about a hot topic that came up in today's episode as we were about to play our dear listener. Your first instrument, mate. Tell me about it. I don't think I've ever asked you. So, definitely a guitar. It's always been the guitar for me. Electric? Yeah, I think so. I think a little three-quarter size black encore guitar, little tiny piece of shit that I... (laughs) Was really oddly as a young kid into Queen, like at nine years old. I really wanted to be Brian May. Did your dad listen to her? Uh, yeah, but not massively. I don't know what it was about Queen and specifically Brian May that stood out to me. But yeah, it was a wanting to be Brian May moment. So I got my black encore and just really didn't do it justice at all for a very long time. Where'd you get it from? I think my parents got it for me maybe at Christmas or a birthday. I can't remember. And then I would learn with a guy that my dad taught called Luke that would just teach me songs with three chords in. I'm pretty sure Losing My Religion was the first song that I learned to play. It's a great song, though. Yeah, it's a great song, yeah. I bet it sounded absolutely fucking awful. I can't (laughs) even imagine. And try why teach someone a song without a chorus is the first thing for them to to learn to play. (laughs) But yeah, good times. I think my first instrument was my mum had an old acoustic guitar. She never played guitar, so I don't know why she had it in the first place. But she had an old acoustic guitar that had a hole in the back of it as well as in the front of it, and it was just a mess. Anyway, so I was like, the guys I ended up in a band with were like, we need a bassist. So like you said in this episode, let's just, I'll be the bassist, shall I, I suppose, (laughs) because I want to be in this band that doesn't exist in the first place. So yeah, I remember taking money out of my savings that were strictly supposed to be for buying a house that had been saved for me over the course of, from the day I was born. Really? Spending £200 in Caddington Music Store on a pack. It all came in a pack, didn't it? It was always a... Bass guitar, a really bad amp. It was like a precision bass copy bass, a really bad amp, a strap, and I think a bag that was pointless. Like you might as well just put tin foil over it because it's just as protective. And yeah, really loving it and then never learning how to play. Could you not get a satisfactorily bassy sound out of the acoustic with a hole in a back? (laughs) No, I mean, it probably sounded just as bad as I (laughs) played the precision bass, but there you go. Cool. Let's move on to our chat. So in a world where we no longer use Windows Media Player to listen to a compilation CD of low-res WMA files that took 20 hours to download, let's get to it. Today's guest is Liam Knowles. I first met Liam at Huddersfield Uni and soon started a band with him called Siren Lake. He was the bassist and, more importantly, the chief of gang vocals. Now, he might deny this bit, but I would say that Liam was an impressively key part of the scene back then in Huddersfield. He seemed to know everyone and they seemed to know him. Whether it be for his emo song lyrics in his MSN name, the sweaty band t-shirts he used to wear religiously day in, day out, 
the straightened fringes with highlights, or even just this hourly bellowing on MySpace with the bulletins. That was then, but we do want to go a little bit further back in time to when he was learning the ropes of being a scene kid in school and college in his first bands. Here we are then, Liam. Thanks for being on the pod then, mate. Oh, thanks for having me. I uh, think it's really rich that you're making fun of my hair, but we'll probably get into that at some point. <laughs> <laughs> so, to get us in the mood there, Knowles, tell us your favourite memory of MySpace and what it was like for you running a band page on there, mate. Oh, man. Obviously, the best thing about MySpace was how much drama you could cause with a slight top eight reshuffle. You had to let people know. Yep. Where, where they were in your own personal pecking order. And MySpace was, uh, was a great way of doing that. If anything, I think there's not enough of that in current social media platforms. I want to be able to record. Were you keeping Tom in there? Was Tom getting a place in there? Or? Tom was gone day one. Yeah, no. That's ruthless. Yeah, well, he just didn't do a lot, did he? He <laughs> might have started it, but kept fairly quiet. But that translated to, to bands as well, though, wasn't it? It wasn't just like a personal thing. If Even if you were in a band, it was like, right, you have to curate that, otherwise you're going to piss off some of your phone mates. Well, yeah, I remember every time we would play a show with a new band, if we got on really well with them and got a bit matey with them, then they'd have to go in the top eight. But that also meant someone going out was pretty ruthless. There was a couple of bands that were like in there from day one and stayed in there for the whole thing. There was some real, real band politics at play. Did you ever find yourself, if you were about to play with a band that you were particularly in awe of, would you ever put them to number one, hoping that they'd see it before <laughs> you turned up on the day? Dave's asking because he did it himself. <laughs> but I wish I had. Of course, yeah. It sounds like something I would have thought was a good idea in 2006. Exactly. It's the pathetic act of a desperate musician back in the day. So good. I kind of miss it. I think like just having that central space of... If you're in a band and if you do not have a MySpace, then whatever you're telling people just doesn't matter because yeah. it was almost like, well, if it's not there, it's, it's irrelevant. And that's so diluted now because obviously you have to have yeah. a Facebook and an Instagram and a Twitter and Bandcamp and everything else. And with MySpace, it was just, that was it. That was all you needed. You could reach everyone that you possibly needed to reach. But yeah, times are very different now. Well, let's go further back then. So that was when we were in Simon Lake, but you were in bands before that. Tell our, our listener. My mum. Tell my mum what, <laughs> what about your bands when you were in school and college. Okay, so the first ever band I was in, I think I was 13. I got my first ever bass when I did work experience in a guitar shop in Corby and started a band called Tearaway with some friends. We never played a gig. We did a cover of U2 Sunday Bloody Sunday and one of our own songs that was about our guitarist's dog. Oh, yeah. And that was it. And that was as far as it ever got. That dog. You're is. kind of covering all bases there, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Need a song about a dog and a song about a historic massacre. Oh, it sounds a lot like Dave's first album, actually. You to beat dogs too. So you've got quite a lot in common. Tell us, t tell us about the dog. What the dog came to no harm in our song. <laughs> we can't all be perfect. <laughs> what? what, what? <laughs> Tell us about the dog then. What was the deal with the dog in the story? So the dog, was basically our guitarist dog was called Benson. And we couldn't write any lyrics because we were kids. So we wrote, oh, we'll go buy some cigarettes and take Benson to the vets just because it rhymes. <laughs> and that was the only reason that was in there. What kind of vibe was that? It sounds a bit pop punky. What was it? It was bad. It was like a pop punk band. Well, 
I say it was a pop punk band. There was that song and the U2 cover. So I honestly don't know what we were, but that was the intention was to be a pop punk band, I think, but it never quite got off the ground. It sounds absolutely perfect. Yeah. So you were, you evolved. Yeah. And then I, like an AFI style punk rock band, I guess, called Blind Hero that I only ever played one show with. And then they kicked me out by uh, going and recording the EP and then I just found that the EP was out and I had not been involved. Oh no. I mean that's worse than being like taken out your top eight, isn't it? They Dave Grohl'd you. I honestly like it felt like a big deal at the time, but like it's quite funny to think about now. But at the time I was like the biggest betrayal I'll ever experience. Do you think they were like, this guy just won't stop trying to play songs about the troubles? We just can't get him to say <laughs> Yeah, I think this guy's too political for us was exactly <laughs> what they were thinking. Yeah, too out there. So good, but that built up the angst and the the, the emotion to go into your next band, yes. I imagine. Yes, so I know that this is the one that you're clawing to talk about. So the <laughs> next one was Breaking Ribs for Tom Thayer, which let me just say, it's a shit name. <laughs> I, think it's a, I think it's a good name. I just don't understand it. Well, neither did we. So we basically loved the Mars Volta, right? And if you remember back in the day when you would download music, sometimes you'd try and download a band, but you'd end up getting the wrong band. So we accidentally got hold of an album by a band called Volta Dumar, who were really good, but they weren't what we were after. And they had a song called Breaking Ribs for Tom Thayer. So we named ourselves after a song that we found by accident when we were trying to find the Mars Volta Brilliant. Love that. Napster or Kazar or whatever. That is actually one of the much better reasons I've ever heard for somebody coming up with a band. Agreed. So you were obviously playing bass in Breaking Ribs for short, right? And it was you and a few other guys, obviously. Tell us us more about Breaking Ribs. Yeah, I played bass in every band I've ever been in. I've never done anything else. But yeah, so Breaking Ribs was me, Craig, who would go on to be in Siren Lake with me and you, and a couple of other guys from back in Corby. We were a proper bunch of misfits but we made pretty cool music i thought at the time at least but what was the first sort of song or did you covers first and then you start getting your own stuff or, or what yeah so we did try a couple of covers so we did um one on scissor by at the drive-in we did arc arsenal also by at the drive-in and we did the haunt of roulette dares by the mars volta we did the at the drive-in ones pretty well the mars volta one less so fairly difficult because <laughs> obviously those are some like, i was gonna say that's that's very ambitious yeah um like i was trying to play bass lines written by flea and it just was not happening at all and then i honestly i can't even remember the names of any of the songs like i know that's really bad and then we we wrote this guy ryan into play keys i remember we gave him a load of albums as like homework like go and listen to these like fucking school homework it's interesting to hear you talk about that influence Mars Volta had because I think even still to this day when that first Mars Volta album I remember because my art class in sixth form were on like a day trip to the Tate Modern and afterwards my friend Tom had gone and bought it on CD but he didn't have a CD Walkman and I did so I just said like what have you got and then listened to it on the way back on the bus shared a headphone each right no, no I, I just <laughs> had it on my <laughs> but I I listened to it like four times in a row and thought, this is the most amazing thing I've ever heard. Like, I can't remember anything making me stand up and just think, I don't know how you've done this. I don't think they ever got near it again, to be honest. Like, I I think, I feel like it's one of those. They've made some good stuff, but that first album is untouchable, as far as I'm concerned. Oh, man. So, do you remember the first gig with Breaking Ribs? 
The first kicker was almost definitely at the Raven in Corby. Fucking um, Raven. Which was like really the only place. <laughs> I know. It was really the only place to play in Corby. You know, it was like a like a rock school thing. So they'd have five local bands on. None of them would be anything like each other. No attempt to put together anything that resembled a cohesive lineup. There'd just be whatever five bands were available. So there'd be us, a black metal band, and a indie covers band. Those lineups were a mess. They were always really well attended. We only ever did one gig outside of Northamptonshire, and it was in a place called The Planet in Wolverhampton. It was a similar sort of thing. It was like a small band show, unsigned showcase, and like it was the biggest dive ever, and none of the toilets had like, none of the cubicles had doors on or anything. It was like a proper shithole. But I was like, oh my God, I'm playing a show outside of my hometown. This is the best thing ever. Yeah, big step. We did like one show with Enter Shikari that was like the only notable show that we really did. That's really cool. Where was that? It was at the Racehorse in Northampton. So it was like 150 nice. capacity. Rammed as well. Not for us, obviously. But <laughs> for Shikari. Oh man, give us some of the lows of breaking ribs. There must be some drama. When we did the Enter Shikari show, it was when Craig and I were based up north by that point. So... We were trying to organize a practice and we got it nailed down to one weekend where we could practice before that show. And then Lee said that he couldn't make the practice. So instead of just being like, oh, we'll go in raw, it'll be fine, which is probably what we should have done. We pulled in our mate Johnny to come and learn all the songs and play the show instead because Lee couldn't make one practice, which now that I think about it, seems like a massive overcorrection. Yeah, <laughs> save it. I bet it made so much sense at the time. Yeah, just to like, well, if you can't practice, you're not going to be good enough. So instead, we'll get somebody who doesn't even know the songs to come and do it, <laughs> which is like very, very <laughs> silly. But that's what we decided to do. It's funny you say that because Rob, do you remember Dave? Rob, he was like looking back on it and just saying, we took it so seriously. We were like, yeah, the reason why we're not going further is because of that. So we booted him out and it like, you know, created friction between them as friends and stuff. And looking back, it was just ridiculous. But you, at the time, this is the most important thing, right? You try and take it seriously and, and, and probably take it too far. And, and yeah, but at the same time, you're going passionate about what you do, right? Teenage band politics is terrible. Well, at that age, you, you still think there might be a chance that you could be a rock star. Now, yeah, totally. everything I enter into with the band I'm in now, I'm well aware that it's never going to be my job and it's never going to be a thing that I do full time. So not having that pressure on it, although we do take it seriously, yeah, it's nice to just like, well, I don't have to worry about making it. I just want to have as many cool experiences as I can for as long as this lasts sort of thing. And I think that's a much healthier way to view it, that you can't develop 20 year old that. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And, and talking about having fun. So you know, with Breaking Ribs, what was the vibe? So it was that kind of Mars Volta-ish. Did you dress accordingly? Did you, you make your hair even shitter than normal because of it? What kind of thing did you do? Oh, no, we we didn't put any thought whatsoever into our image. We just looked like five randomers who've been rounded up off the street without knowing what's happened. I'm there with my big fringe and my terror t-shirt, and then Craig's got surfer beats on, and like <laughs> Ryan's in like a polo shirt and with his glasses on, and Matt's got a sleeveless jumper over a shirt, and it, we're just a mess. We we look like the least stylized, least wardrobe band ever, which is, you know, in one way, pretty punk rock, but in another way, we look dreadful. So do you think being in a band, do you help your popularity levels, your social status? Not really, no. I, I don't think being in a band was cool until much later in our lives. I feel like it's cool now, and I feel like kids who are into music now would definitely have some popularity off the back of that. Tell us about some of the gear you were using. Do you remember what you were using when you were in bands in school? 
I remember my first ever bass was just a Squire Precision, played through a carpet-covered, no-name 30-watt bass amp, which probably sounded just like farts. And then I remember getting a PV of some description for Christmas one year, and I played with that for a long time. And then I got myself a cheeky five-string when I was in Siren Lake, and then soon realized that that life is not for me. And went and went back to a four. Are you not rocking a five anymore? What are you back on the four? It just it's too many strings. There's no need for that fifth string. Oh, piss off! Of course there is, mate. Come on. I'm not in my vein. Like I don't. Well, 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 unfortunately, you should be. I know. <laughs> if I was a good enough bass player to be in Mudvayne, we would not be having this conversation. So that Squire bass that you got, you mentioned earlier that you got it after you'd done work experience in yeah. that shop. So was that? in lieu of payment for work experience or was it you still had to buy the bass as well i still had to buy it i don't i honestly don't know like i had a guitar but i never really got any good at it (laughs) perfect and i did that work experience and something just sort of like all the bases were in like a dark dingy corner of the shop that no one ever went to and i just found myself drawn to it maybe mostly because i could slack off back there and no one had noticed because i was in the bass corner but yeah at the end of that week i was just like I think I want to play bass and I just part exchanged everything I had and got the cheapest bass and the cheapest amp and just sort of went from there. I was never really much good for a long time until I tried to teach myself that first Rage Against the Machine album one summer and then I was like okay oh, I'm yeah. pretty good at this now but before that I was pretty basic and um probably still nowhere near as good as I should be considering I've been playing for 20 years, 21, 22 years. I remember from uni thinking how kind of great it was, how dedicated you were to the bass, because bassists were almost always like the guy that was like, all right, then I'll play the bass. <laughs> like meeting someone that could play the bass and wanted to play the bass was like really quite refreshing. Yeah, there was basically me and Tom Waldron, wasn't there? And every other bassist we knew was a bassist by accident. Someone who wanted to play guitar, but the band already had two guitarists, so they before bullied into playing bass. But yeah, I, I like the bass. One string at a time, that's all you need to do. Totally, totally. Doddle. Liam, if you were to give yourself a young Liam Knowles some advice, what would you say to him Like, if he's in a band at the age of 15 and he's going, oh, I'm just going to be famous, this is it, this is the one, or you're stressed out because, you know, you've got to give your keyboard player some homework, what, what would you say to him? I'd probably say practice more so that you can be as good a bass player as you should be 22 years from now. But I'd also probably just say, just like, let go of that idea. You're going to make it because if you are, you are. And if you're not, you're not. And there's probably not really anything you can do to force it. So, yeah, I feel like when you're young and you're in a band, you put a lot of pressure on yourself that isn't healthy and takes away from your enjoyment of it. So I'd probably just give myself a bit of a reality check. But yeah, I don't know. I think I think I generally had a good experience in bands, far more positive memories than negative ones. Even the shit gigs are still a laugh with your mates that you remember later down the line. Yeah, definitely some. I just remember Stoke. All I hate Stoke. The word Stoke just, just, just fucking. Come on then, tell me how you fell over in Stoke. No, I didn't fall over in Stoke. I remember getting like nearly beaten up by a pimp and his bitch, for want of a better phrase. Like, I went to move the van or something. We got there. We were playing at a gig again. That was probably no one. And it was dark and I was moving the van and he just came up and he was like, what's your problem? I'm like, what do you mean, what's my problem? Well, my problem is this fucking transit van's costing me a fortune <laughs> and it's falling apart. But him and, him and his his woman just straight away, I was like, please don't, just leave me alone. Like, I just was like, I'm not coming back to Stoke again because t- it was the second time I was dead again and I was like, I'm done. I'm done with Stoke. No one wants to go to Stoke. Yeah, Stoke, we played in Stoke to 
so few people that not even the promoter turned up. So it was literally just us <laughs> and the other two bands. No one running the show. One person behind the bar. Yeah. That was it. Like, that was shit show. You do that thing though, don't you? Do you remember the amount of times that we'd get there and it'd be like, let's just wait an extra five minutes. Come on, someone will come, like just in case. And then eventually someone's like, guys, you really need to get on the fucking stage because yeah. that's it. It's not happening. Yeah, they're used to that in Stoke, I reckon. So mm. they'll have no got, patience for that. I always say that they're like the B towns in inverted commas are the best places to play because they're grateful when something actually comes to them. You know, Manchester, Leeds, London, whatever you spoil for choice. But in Stoke, how many things can possibly be happening? But yet none of them wanted to come to our show. Yeah. So there must have been something going on. <laughs> I'm quite impressed at the moment that Stoke has come off so poorly in the pimp and his bitch segment that I wasn't <laughs> expecting to happen today. All right. <laughs> Pretty rebellious. Speaking of rebellious, is there any rebellious memories you can think of in uh, your band days? No, because I'm a fucking square um, and I always have been and I still am. I think, you know, the most rebellious thing we ever did was that I can remember from being in a band was that time we crashed the van in Siren Lake. So we had a bit of a like obstacle course and shenanigans on the side of the A14 until the breakdown guy turned up. But apart from that, no, I was pretty straight laced the whole time. Just, uh, it's just so depressing. I mean, it's it's entirely my fault as well. Yeah. I wasn't going to bring that up. Oh, did you? Were you driving? Yeah, no, I was driving. We came off a dual carriageway or something, came to a roundabout, and these dickheads were fucking around. Someone was doing something, and I turned around, and then instead of paying attention to what was ahead of me, I should have put my foot down quicker. And obviously, because when you got, A, a really big shit piece of shit van, and then a load of gear in the back, obviously you really need to slam on your brakes when you really should do. And then, yeah, when it's the back of someone else, and then, well, no, when it's the back of a lorry... And then yeah. he fucked off, and it was like, well, our uh, radiator's about to blow up, so um, <laughs> now we've got to deal with this. But yeah, it was very depressing. Yeah, he didn't even notice he'd been hit. He just disappeared. No. And we were just left to try and deal with what happened. <laughs> Those are the days. I think it's it's worth it for, like like you say, the experience, but the stories now as well, so. Oh, yeah. I wouldn't change it. There was one night, Dave, where we had, I think it was a Huddersfield gig or something, and we all ended up going back to, you remember theirs in the second year, the place yeah. that these guys had. And obviously got boozy and Daryl got absolutely off his tits and, and paralytic. So the guys or everyone decided that we would just douse him in toothpaste and shaving foam. So they took razors and clippers to his hair. So he woke up the next morning like distraught because he'd been, oh, he woke up, he'd been vomiting on the stairs. If you remember that building. Didn't he have quite long hair? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they'd uh, really gone to town. So it was a fucking mess. Yeah. So it was so a, woke... it was a life decision that you made for him. <laughs> yeah, it was like this is a the abuse. I mean, real rough. You left out one key bit of that, which is that at one point his hair was on fire. No, was it? I don't yeah, know. yeah. Fucking hell. Uh, so like, like, so there was like burnt bits and shaved bits. They shaved a shape that looked a bit <laughs> like a rhino into the back of his head. It was yeah, oh, it was nice. a massacre. And he was just obviously just so upset the next morning. And I remember he like called his girlfriend and was just like like nearly in tears and was just so upset because he knew he was going to get so much grief. He had to go to his, the hairdressers that morning at like nine o'clock in the morning just to shave it all off because it was that bad. But yeah, fucking hell. It's so long ago, Breaking Ribs was 17, 18 years ago, that it just feels like a bit of a weird blur now. The Siren Lake stuff is a bit fresher in my head, but maybe only because we've got that ridiculous video, that 20-minute mini-film yeah. thing that we did, so it just keeps it fresh in my mind. But mostly I just remember how 
much fun it is to be in a band. And I, I honestly don't think now that I'll ever not want to do it in some capacity. Like even when Hidden Mothers fizzles out or whatever, I'll do something else and I'll keep going until my hands fall off. I can't imagine ever not doing it now. Dave's starting That's a great. Robbie Williams cover band if you, yeah, if you fancy getting involved. Well, yeah. well, we could do with know. a little bit of U2, a little bit of U2 at the end of the set. <laughs> Just solo bass, solo bass Sunday, bloody Sunday. I'll check my calendar. <laughs> So now we move on to the section where we discuss the glory days of peer-to-peer data piracy. We are all very much of the Napster generation, but what was your platform of choice? I guess my question is, what were you stealing and where were you stealing it from? So I was a LimeWire kid. Everything that I stole came off LimeWire or for a period Kazaa, but never Napster. I could never figure Napster out. Oh, I'd forgotten out. about Kazaa. Napster felt complica- more complicated than the others to me for some reason. So I think I downloaded it, tried to get some stuff and just pied it off. But mostly, I was mostly stealing loads of like turn of the century, emo, post-hardcore, any band that had a big fringe and tight jeans I was bang into. <laughs> but there's one, I know you wanted me to kind of focus in on a song and there was a couple that nearly made the cut. But the one that really sticks out for me is Nerdy by Poison the Well. Oh man, that is such a good choice. Yeah, it's a banger. Uh, so I was like everyone else, pop punk and new metal because Kerrang TV had me under the impression that that's all that there was and that, you know, no other kind of alternative music existed except Limp Bizkit and Sum 41 and that was it. And then I remember listening to the Radio 1 Rock show and hearing Nerdy by Poison the Well. Funnily enough, it was chosen on there by a, a member of Kitty. Of course, oh, yeah. yeah. Brackish. They were on there like picking track to play and they played a song off the first Mastodon album and they played Poison the Well and I was just like, holy shit, what is this? Where has this been? And then after that just disappeared down a rabbit hole on like peer-to-peer of getting into Thursday and Converge and the Hope Conspiracy and all those bands from that period, all of the like tight jeans, white belt, barely audible vocals, tinny production Give me all of that horrible clattering racket. I love it. I think if I, I don't think if I hadn't heard that song that night, I honestly don't know how my tastes would have ended up. Like that is a clear point for me that was like, you're going in this direction now because of this one song. Such a good chill choice, man. It just like immediately throws me back to Camel. And the the second that came on, I remember you just dragging half of the club onto that floor. And, and yeah, just losing your shit, man. What Great were the track. other two tracks that almost made the cut? My other, my other ones that like got close was Understanding in a Car Crash by Thursday, which was, again, another yeah. massive one. And Home Wrecker by Converge was the other one. Whenever anybody asks about how I got into heavy music, I remember hearing the first Slipknot album and being like, this is too much. I can't handle this. This isn't music. This is far more than I can cope with. <laughs> And then eventually something kept me going back to it. And I was like, oh, no, wait, actually, this is fucking amazing. This is, this is great. But I was frightened of it almost the first time I heard it because I just couldn't comprehend what was happening. That's only ever happened to me one other time since. And it was the first time I heard Converge off the back of that Poison the Well song when I went on my little rabbit hole on Kazar or whatever, hearing 
those tracks from Jane Doe and just being like, this has just scared the shit out of me and I don't know if I like it or not. And then again, just kind of kept going back to it and being like, no, actually, this is the shit. Now you did a great choice, man. That's your legacy. There you go. Right, mate. Thank you very much for being on the pod. It's been incredibly nostalgic and uh, and it's been a pleasure. So thanks, man. Well, thanks for having me. It's, it's been really nice. Yeah, thanks, Liam. It's been really, really nice to talk to you. It's nice to go back over this stuff, to be honest, because all I talk to people about anymore is now music and I haven't thought about a lot of this stuff in a long time. So yeah, it's nice to revisit. Lovely stuff. Hey there, rockers. This is James Hetfield from Metallica, and you've been tuning in to the Back in the Band podcast. Thanks for riding the lightning with us. Remember, this isn't a one-way conversation. Connect with us on Instagram. You can find us at Back in the Band Pod. Got something to say? Tweet us at Back in the Band. And of course, make sure to hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss the riff. Until next time, keep rocking, stay tuned, and stay metal. Metal.